Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Think Anesthesia Educational Podcast. My name is Dr. Travis Kim. I am today's host and a member of the technical services team at Jurox Animal Health. Today, we welcome Dr. Tony Woodward with Montana Pet Dentistry and Oral Surgery located in Bozeman, Montana. Dr. Woodward is a board certified veterinary dentist and oral surgeon and has been practicing dental medicine for 20 years. For the last seven years, he's lived in Bozeman, Montana and covers Montana, South Dakota, Wyoming, Idaho, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. It is a pleasure to have him here to discuss dentistry and our veterinary patients. Dr. Woodward, thank you for joining us. I know it's a busy month with you, just starting off with dental month, so we definitely appreciate your time. First, why don't you tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to be at this spot in your career? Sure. Well, first, let me just say I'm happy to have a chance to talk with you. I'm always excited to talk about dentistry and veterinary patients. So I came to dentistry because of windsurfing. And I had a group of that we went to South Padre Island every year for over 20 years windsurfing, and most of them were human dentists. And I would listen to their shop talk, and I thought it was like pretty cool, the materials and the little things that they did. And, and that led me into starting to do more dentistry and getting a dental x-ray machine. And as I started to do more, I realized uh, a couple of really major things. One was that veterinary patients never show any signs of pain, even if they're uncomfortable, they just hide it. And owners don't notice that. But when you fix the problem, the owners notice the improvement and I, I started noticing that I got more thank yous from my dental patients, like, thank you, my dog's acting so much younger. I got more thank yous in my dental patients than the whole rest of my clinical caseload. So I just decided at that point that I would uh, start a residency and start a training program. And that's what I did uh, like 23 years ago. I started a training program. And so Windsurfing led me into dentistry in a somewhat circuitous route. Wow. So obviously you just mentioned fixing pain is one of your favorite things. When speaking to vets around the country, it's very obvious that everyone has like their favorite case, their favorite disease, favorite procedure that they do. What are some of your favorite cases to, to work on and why? Well, I tell you what I personally like, there's a number of things, but I love working with trauma patients and putting them back together again. So facial fractures and dental fractures, to me, it's like really interesting to figure out the best way to repair those cases and put them together. And we do a lot of uh, wire and acrylic splints for mandibular and, and maxillary fracture cases. Uh, a lot of palatal surgery with those trauma patients. I really enjoy that. Oncology, we do a lot of oncology because oral tumors are fairly common. And I really like those cases as well. They're challenging for a number of different reasons. And then we do a lot of root canal therapy on particularly larger teeth, the canine teeth and the carnasial teeth, the upper fourth premolars and lower first molars, because uh, you can maintain function and there's no trauma, no drilling, no no sutures, no removal of bone, and the animals are almost instantly uh, better. 
So those are probably my favorite things, trauma, oncology, and uh, endodontic therapy. If I had to have favorites, those are probably my favorites right there. Is there anything uh, special that you do to prepare for these particularly difficult cases? Yeah, I think like everybody else, uh, I read everything I can. I think that's really helpful before trying something that you don't do very often. I think it's also really helpful to look at skull models, and it's also really helpful if you have the chance to image the patient beforehand to really kind of think about it and decide what you're going to do. And for me, if I'm doing something that's pretty invasive, we have the opportunity, unlike in human medicine, to practice on a cadaver specimen. So for better or worse, we have some of those for teaching purposes. We do a lot of educational work, and it's always a good thing to try out something you don't do a lot on a cadaver specimen before you do it on a live patient. I've talked to a lot of dentists, and I know a lot of the the cases that you end up seeing are, are potentially high anesthetic risk, more so than a difficult dental procedure. So so in your, your mind, when should a, a general practitioner refer? When is it in the best interest for the patient? And I mean, as far as the dental procedure itself, and also for those high anesthetic risk cases that may be a little overwhelming or a general practitioner may feel fear doing the, the anesthetic. Yeah, I think that's a great question. We do tend to get a lot of referrals. I have one huge advantage is my resident who's been with me for over a year now, Dr. Fells, did uh, two years of an anesthesiology residency. So I have the luxury of having someone with that level of training in our practice. And we get a lot of referrals for high-risk patients in the region. In fact, a lot of veterinarians that are a little nervous about anesthetizing their own pets will bring them to us. And these are cases you can imagine, like cardiac cases, uh, renal disease, renal insufficiency, uh, anything that's going to be really lengthy. And somebody might feel like it would take multiple anesthetic episodes for them to get it taken care of when we're maybe a little quicker at it because that's all we do. As far as procedural things that people can think about referring, as I mentioned, fractures, trauma, we really love uh, anything above the neck. We like putting anything above the neck back together. Uh, fractured large and important teeth, frequently we can save those. Oral neoplasia, as I mentioned. And then another really cool thing that we have now is the ability to do uh, advanced imaging. We have a cone beam CT that we can roll right up to the table. And the cone beam CT is the absolute ultimate by today's standards to image teeth and bone. And compared to a helical CT, the helical is certainly better for soft tissue, but we get about 550 slices just on a skull. The detail that we get with that is just amazing. So sometimes having imaging like that and being able to look at things in three dimensions uh, can be really, really helpful. And then I guess the last thing that kind of comes to mind is if a general practitioner is doing something and something happens, like you break something off or you're going after a root that's right next to a major artery, or you push a root in the nose, or a root ends up in the mandibular canal, and you're a little nervous about going after it, there's never anything wrong with calling the owner and saying, I'm uncomfortable with this. 
And I think that someone who's more comfortable with this should do this procedure on this pet. You're never going to get in trouble for saying, I'm uncomfortable with this. I'd like to refer you somewhere else. You might get in trouble pushing forward and outside your envelope of what you're comfortable with. So those are a few things. We see fair number of like roots displaced into odd spots. And the last thing you want to do is go chasing after them if you're not really comfortable with it and potentially creating more problems. What, what are some common mistakes that you see general practitioners make? Well, you know what? I think there's probably two or three that really stand out. And, and one is fairly easy to remedy. And that is failure to take full mouth radiographs on every dental patient, regardless of what you think you see in the oral cavity, because you're going to miss a huge amount of pathology if you're not taking full mouth dental x-rays on every dental patient every time. Guaranteed, I mean, studies have shown if you just take radiographs of only the normal teeth, so you look at a patient, that patient's anesthetized. You look and you say that those are all normal teeth in that animal's mouth, and there's one or two bad ones, but we're only going to worry about imaging the ones that you swear are normal. That in 28% of dogs and 42% of cats, you will find additional pathology to treat that you would not have found otherwise. Now, you know, some people might say, well, 28 and 42%, but that's a pretty high diagnostic yield. I mean, can you imagine somebody saying, I'm not going to test for heartworm because only 42% of dogs are positive for heartworm. So I'm not going to do that. Or I'm not going to check for internal parasites in cats when only 28% are positive. Now, probably 28% are positive, but you get the idea. That's a really, really high diagnostic yield. And, uh, and if you're not taking dental x-rays, 100% guaranteed you're leaving most of your patients with untreated pathology that you could and should be providing for that patient. And for every mistake made for not knowing, you make 10 mistakes for not looking, for not checking it out. Along those same lines, I think we see problems with people not taking post-operative films. And a friend of mine did a study that was published a while back and they looked at, I think about 75 dogs and 42 cats that it had extractions of either the upper fourth premolar or lower first molars in a general practice. So the carnasial teeth, and it was documented a general practitioner did the extraction. It was done in general practice. And what would you guess the incidence of snapped off roots was in those patients in dogs and cats? Take a guess. Take a guess. Um, I'd say 20%. 82% of dogs and 92% of cats. Wow. And if they had just taken a post-op radiograph, they would have seen it and could have chosen to go after it or not go after it. And this was in Southern California, but I think it probably was a pretty representative population. And I can't tell you how many patients we see that come to us for maybe another reason and we take full mouth x-rays. And we find things that should have been treated years ago. We find retained roots. And we're not like geniuses, but there's roots, there's cysts, there's non-vital teeth, inapparent non-vital teeth. They look normal, 
and yet they've got some dramatic changes radiographically, and particularly on cone beam CT, you can see huge areas of bone loss. And then I guess this is almost a philosophical thing. And the third thing is, I think that people get into trouble when they have lay staff, when they have technicians do oral surgery. And it's certainly less common. It's still fairly common in Montana, where I'm from. And I think the sad thing is that the owners don't know that's what's taking place. And I think there's some questionable ethics involved. It's misleading, number one. But number two, you're putting a person who's not surgically trained or just had on-the-job training, you're putting them in the position of doing surgery with sharp instrumentation and high-speed drills right in the neighborhood of some vital structures. And I don't think that is the right thing to do. And I think that veterinarians, I think doctors should do surgery and charge appropriately for doctor time. But I don't think it's appropriate to have technicians do surgery, but charge as if it's uh, doctors doing the surgery. So that's something that's maybe a a little bit of a pet peeve, something I, I disagree with. And I, you know what, I realize it's still somewhat common, but I guarantee you that the vast majority of clients are unaware of that practice. I don't think it's fair for the patients. And I think that's from a long time ago when we had no training in dentistry in school whatsoever. And so like me, I had no training in dentistry whatsoever. And we just dumped dental treatment onto the technicians. And basically it was uh, scrape the teeth clean. And if there's wiggly teeth, pull those teeth if they're mobile. And that was the extent of dentistry. And I didn't discover till many years later that pursuing dentistry like that leaves the vast majority of patients painful and uncomfortable, but they don't say anything about it. They don't do anything. They don't say anything. Their life goes on. They'll never stop eating ever. And so you can't use perceived behavior by an owner as any indication of whether or not there's a dental problem. Because when you fix them, they're definitely going to feel better. So uh, anyway, there's some things that I wish people would do. And kind of along those same lines, I I wish I could convince people always take those post-operative radiographs after every procedure. And I think not only does that make you a better practitioner, but it also kind of covers you from a legal standpoint. It demonstrates that what you did was appropriate and that you did the job correctly. Mm-hmm. And so you don't get called on it down the road. I think that's a good standard of care. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. On, on the, the lines of improving general practitioners' dental abilities, do you have any good recommendations for dental CE for the average practitioner? You know what I tell you, there's a number, there's a really, really large number of, of opportunities out there for that. I started and it's still going the Colorado Pet Dental Training Center. Uh, I started about 18 or 19 years ago in Colorado, and we had four to 500 students a year for 15 years. And that facility is still doing training down in Colorado Springs. There's no substitute for hands-on training. And there are opportunities available all around the United States. A lot of board-certified veterinary dentists 
offer classes or have training programs or will come to your clinic, but there is no substitute for hands-on wet lab training. And it's pretty easy to provide. In fact, we are finishing building out some space for our standalone location here in Bozeman. And one of the first things we took into account with planning is we wanted to have the ability to have a classroom and do teaching. So I'm looking forward to being able to offer classes here beginning early summer 2022. And I'm excited about that opportunity to be able to do that. But there are wonderful training centers all over the U.S. No one has to go very far. And a lot of the veterinary teaching hospitals have opportunities at, at those locations as well. So yeah, there, there's a lot of good opportunity out there for lay staff and veterinarians both. Yeah. So no, no excuses for, for not getting the dental CE done. Yeah. You know what? Dentistry is the most profitable area of veterinary medicine by far. The net on dental procedures because it takes so little space and it takes so little equipment compared to just about everything else. And if you wanna push your practice to a higher level of profitability, dental equipment and dental training, uh, if you had nothing at all and you needed to get dental x-rays, high-speed delivery unit, few sets of dental surgical instruments and go get training. And if you put all that equipment on a lease, all you needed to do was about one cleaning a month to pay for the lease payment. And it takes so little space. I mean, you're working on a tub table in the back and you've got like 30 square feet around you and it's really profitable. So a practice that could use a little more business, although I don't know any practices like that now in COVID, <laughs> right. the stories I hear, people just turn away all kinds of work that they just don't have time for it. But uh, with dental training and, uh, and improving your dental department, your dental department should be close to 20% of your gross revenue. Some people hit that, but more people are around like 3%. And, and they just don't think that anyone will accept dental treatment, but they will. If you present it to them in a logical fashion, people are very, very accepting of dental treatment, even in rural uh, areas in rural situations. You mentioned your fancy CT, but are there, do you have any tips or tricks for improving dental radiographs for those that, that don't have the ability to have a CT and also interpreting them? Well, so the CT is kind of a next level thing, and it'll probably be a while before many general practices have that. But certainly dental radiography, it is like the basic tool. It would be like a glucometer for treating diabetic patients. So that's a very good analogy or blood work for internal medicine cases. You have to have that capability. And it is very, very easy to gain proficiency in that. There's all kinds of companies that have certified veterinary technicians that will travel to provide CE in your practice. And we actually do a fair amount of that where we go to practices. And you know what? I have two technicians that are so good at it. I just send them to the practices and they bring a cadaver head and you practice for a little bit and everybody takes radiographs and then you're off to the races at that point. So radiography CE, radiology CE is super helpful and it's easy to have someone come to your place of business. And then with the advent uh, digital dental, 
radiographs. And that gives you the ability to take an x-ray, look at it immediately, see what the problem is, make a little correction, take another one and boom, there's your, your good view right there. And so it's really easy to get CE in that. And you can get that at your own place of business. What do you say to clients that ask about anesthesia-free dentistry? Um, and then those also that are concerned with potential pain of extractions and the, the post-op care that they have to provide at home? Well, both good questions and both kind of separate questions. So anesthesia-free dentistry, I think that's pretty simple. That's a really pathetic level of care and that's being real polite about it. And they prey on people's fear of anesthesia, but you know, anesthesia done well, the risk is really, really low. If you're using uh, short acting drugs, good anesthetic protocols, drugs that are reversible, if you monitor really well, including entitled CO2, if you've got good people sitting there monitoring, if you do that level of anesthesia, and, and you and I both know, there's a wide variety, a, a broad spectrum, I should say, of anesthetic quality out there in the veterinary marketplace. But if you're doing a good job with it, you should hardly have any problem ever at all. It should be a very rare occurrence that you have any kind of major anesthetic incidents. And so here's the deal. I already mentioned this without dental x-rays, you have no idea whatsoever what's going on. You cannot tell what's going on. And an animal with significant disease you cannot clean subgingivally. You certainly can't clean the teeth in the back. You can't image the teeth, can't take dental radiographs. And as I already pointed out, if you can't take dental radiographs, you're leaving the majority of your patients in pain. And one argument I have heard from those companies, they'll point out that it's a matter of profits. And I agree 100% with that. And it's a matter of profits for the anesthesia-free companies, because just imagine if you didn't need Alfaxin. You didn't need any anesthetic drugs. You didn't have to have trained technicians at all. You didn't need a facility because you went to other people's places of business. You didn't need to have your professional license and CE requirements or any of those things at all. And they're cranking out about one patient every 30 minutes on average with almost no overhead and very sketchy training for most, not all, but for most of the companies that I'm aware of, that I was made aware of, almost no training whatsoever. And it's uncomfortable for the patient, but you don't have any overhead whatsoever. So the profitability is just like insane in anesthesia-free dentistry. It, it like, I cannot even believe once you start to pencil it out. So here's the thing, I'm a board certified veterinary dentist and I'm somewhat entrepreneurial. If I thought that there was value in anesthesia-free cleaning, I would be the king of anesthesia-free cleaning in the Western United States. I would have groups of technicians roving the West, setting up these clinics, and I could sell it and literally make millions a year providing that service. And I think every other veterinary dentist would be doing the same thing if we felt there was value in that. But we don't feel like there's value in that. And so we're, we're not involved with it at all. And then I, I touched on this, but I think it's very uncomfortable in animals with painful problems. All they know is that instrument is coming closer and closer and closer to the sore area in their mouth. 
and they are wrapped in blankets. And I know from people that have worked for some of these services, they'll put a mouth gag in the mouth, like some kind of bite block to hold the mouth open so they can not get bit. And they wrap them in towels and restrain them. And although people don't see what goes on behind the scenes, and I'm not saying that all of the services are like that, but I've heard that on more than one occasion. And I know what it takes for me to get back in the back of a patient's mouth to really assess what's going on. And they have to be really quiet, not moving at all. I need good lighting. I need the mouth held open and at a level where I can see what's going on and they can't be wiggling at all. And I just don't see how anybody thinks uh, that it's really helpful in removing calculus above the gum line Calculus above the gum line doesn't really cause much of a problem at all. It's unsightly, it smells a little bit, but really it doesn't create a lot of issues. So I liken it, what I call it as grooming the teeth. It's like having the teeth groomed, but it doesn't get under the gum line. It doesn't let you image the patient. You can't obtain your dental radiographs and you're leaving most of them in pain. And it's a really highly profitable procedure for the anesthesia-free companies, way more profitable than doing it the correct and proper way. But people, they're scared of anesthesia and I can appreciate that. And they feel like, okay, I got a good job done and it cost me less and I didn't risk my animal's life. But if you're doing a good job, for me, it's been over 22 years since I had an anesthetic fatality. And I do somewhere from five to 800 anesthesias a year. And it's been over 22 years. And since I actually got a lot of additional training in anesthesia as part of getting boarded in dentistry. And so I don't worry about anesthesia a whole lot. I'm vigilant. I'm cautious. I'm always watching, but rarely am I scared. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, as if you didn't pick up on it, I'm not a real fan of anesthesia-free dentistry. Yeah, that's the good summary. Although I tell you what, it's tempting. If I had a general practice, I line up 20 patients, you come in, I didn't have to do anything at all. And I get a check for whatever. That's very, very tempting, but I think it's a poor level of service. And I think it's a disservice to your patients. As far as pain, you touched on pain for extractions. Yeah. And I think people are pretty cognizant of this, that you need multimodal pain control. And it's starting before the procedure and continuing at home with things like maybe pre-anesthetic NSAIDs, planning for if you're going to know you're going to do something painful, use something like alpha-2 agonists, potentially, and uh, narcotics as part of your pre-anesthetic package. Maybe if you need to, you can bump them with an opiate uh, during the procedure, certainly local and regional anesthesia. A lot of times as these guys are waking up, we might give them another little dose of opiates or an alpha-2 agonist just to help them wake up more comfortably. Uh, we use a little buprenorphine in with our local anesthetic agents to extend the, the duration of the blocks. And then we send them home on typically for a dog NSAIDs. For a cat, uh, we, we commonly use buprenorphine and we frequently use combinations of other things as well. So you're getting them pre, intra, and post-op. And I failed to mention intra-op, uh, concentrate infusions of morphine, lidocaine, ketamine, 
it, there's a lot of different combinations of that. So if you prevent the pain, and, and we're as veterinarians all aware of the multimodal thing, but if you get in front of the pain and it, <clears throat> you don't get uh, wound up, then uh, they just do so much better. And we rarely get any complaints. If we get a complaint, anything about our pain protocol, it's from dysphoria from a narcotic. It's just they're worried because the animals seem butterflies at midnight flying around and you know how that goes. We get calls about that, but I think we're pretty good with our pain control. Yeah. As you mentioned, so many clients saying like, they're a completely different animal now. I had no idea how much pain they were in every day. So now they're actually pain-free with those teeth gone and they're acting like a puppy or a kitten again and thanking you profusely for doing the work. And as a veterinarian, you never get tired of hearing that. Whatever treatment you're doing, <clears throat> we had a dog uh, come in about a month ago with bilateral rostral mandibular fractures. And the front of the mandible was drooping down and, and the fractures were bilateral mandibular fractures and the whole front of the mandible was drooped down and the dog was just shrieking every time he moved. And it's because as that piece was bobbing up and down, I think he was like stretching on his mandibular nerves. And I just can't even imagine what that would feel like. So we repaired them with a wire and acrylic splint works really well for a fracture like that. And he was immediately more comfortable just not having that bob around. And we actually just took the splint off that dog yesterday. Uh, he had that on for about three and a half weeks, middle-aged dog did great. He's home, like feeling like a million bucks and that when you can do something like that, that just gives you a really good feeling. Yeah. And, and I, we hear that constantly. And most veterinary practices that are doing uh, good basic dentistry, I'm, I know that they hear that same thing from their clients. And it really is addictive to hear that, to get <laughs> yeah. that nice feedback. Everybody likes that nice feedback. Absolutely. I'll ask you my last question. I, I got to ask you this. I always am interested with specialists. Which specialty do you think you would have done if you hadn't become a dentist? It would have been surgery. And I kind of had that opportunity a little dangled in front of me. I certainly could have gotten an internship, but I was sick of school. <laughs> After <laughs> eight years of college nonstop, I was tired of being a poor student and I wanted to get out and start working, but it would have been surgery. And again, it's little bits and parts and pieces and equipment and drills. And there are some similarities, but for me, I think it would have been probably orthopedic surgery. Yeah. That's sort of what you're doing just on a very localized area of bone. So that's all the time we have in this podcast. I would really like to thank Dr. Tony Woodward of Montana Pet Dentistry and Oral Surgery for joining us today to discuss dentistry and veterinary medicine. To everyone listening, please don't hesitate to do some research in your area and find a veterinary dental uh, team to refer your patients to for continued high quality care. Or if you're lucky enough to live in and around the area covered by Dr. Woodward, don't hesitate to reach out to them for referrals. Thank you all for joining and have a great day. Thank you.